0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Glenn Washington is the host of Snap Judgment, the storytelling program that's set to a beat from NPR. You hear it on WDET on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at 7 p.m. Glenn and Snap are in Detroit this week with their live stage show. The show is at the Royal Oak Music Theater tonight at 8 p.m. You can still get tickets and find that information at snapjudgment.org. But Glenn is not just the host of Snap Judgment; he's also a friend of mine, and has been since we were students together at the University of Michigan in the late '80s and early '90s. So it is really great to have Glenn Washington in studio with us today to talk about his life and his career, and the connection that we share from so long ago. Glenn Washington, welcome to Detroit today.
1: Thank you so much. It is
0: really, really great to see you. Here I can't in believe I get to see you with <laughs> headphones and microphones. That's I great. know. Who would have thought? 30-some years ago, that uh, we would be sitting across from each other like this in a studio talking about your work uh, above all. Crazy. Yeah. No, it is. I should also note that uh, we have a live studio audience with us today, a bunch of folks who wanted to come and have a little bit of breakfast with Glenn and I this morning and then sit in on the studio to watch the show. We really appreciate all of them as well. So, Glenn, I want to start with... The live show tonight, uh, as I said, WDET listeners here. Snap judgment on Wednesdays and Sundays here. Uh, how is the live show different? Most of the time, we are we're talking, to, speaking to people on Snap
1: who would never get in front of anybody's microphone or you know camera or anything like this. And every once in a while, we get to flip the script and bring some of the top storytellers in the world and really have them throw out. A story go deep deep inside we always say that the best snap judgment storytelling is like picking at scabs and um these these uh people they they're just amazing what you're gonna see tonight and i hope you're gonna see it is wonder and magic and joy and we really go the it's so electric on stage and i just can't wait for people to see this show tonight yeah. um it uh we, we said you're gonna feel all the feel you're gonna laugh you're gonna cry we're gonna laugh some
0: more (laughs) and and talk about how you get these stories how do you get people to come and tell you these stories they are often very intimate Uh, they are often sometimes difficult to tell they are often uh wrenching how do you how do you find the folks who will come and do this and then the people who come do it on stage yeah um
1: it is it's a it's a real process and um something that we, we work with with some storytellers we worked with artists of all types. Um, the, the thing of it is, is oftentimes you know, people might, you might have an idea for a story, but it's like, it's for me personally, it seems like every single story that ends up having an impact is a story that I didn't want to tell. It's a story that I've recoiled from. And it's often because I've recoiled from an aspect of myself. It's like, I don't want to look there because I don't look so good that way. I didn't do the right thing there. I'm not sure that people are going to understand me if they see or if I expose this. And um, even though, you know, it's it's amazing at this point in Snap, you know, I've told hundreds of stories, but I still don't want to do the basic stuff, <laughs> that leaning in and putting your neck out that it takes and – um and and, I, and and working with storytellers and it's not just me everybody nobody wants to reveal no one wants to to, to open up the uh, open up their soul like that unless they understand they're going to get something from
0: it. right there's something very raw right. about that and there's something I would imagine very emotionally raw about not just getting up and doing it but the process, the lead up to it, the thinking about which parts of that story to tell thinking about how to deal with things that are difficult or embarrassing. Uh, This whole idea of of getting ready to do it, I would imagine, is at least as difficult as getting up and doing it.
1: You know, it's funny because I had some friends say, you know, you came from a crazy background. (laughs) How is it that you sometimes act normal? And I was like, well, I got the best therapy of all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I go right, the to microphone. therapy, but I got
1: therapy Yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, and, it, and, it, and sometimes it almost feels like that. Now, what people might not understand is that even on my own show, most of my stories don't make it through. Um, which I'm very annoyed about because the only thing I ever produce is brilliance. <laughs> You're like, but, it's my show. How come right. I can't
0: tell the story I want to tell?
1: <laughs> but it, it has to go through the same process as everybody else. And um, I work with some of the best um, artists in the world, people with real great storytelling chops. Um, my, my, uh, my partner, Mark Ristich, and, and Anna Sussman and this gang of, um, of producers, they, um, they keep us honest. And it's really an amazing, I, I love... I feel so lucky to be able to work with such great people all the time.
0: Music is a huge part of your show, and the slogan is storytelling with, with a beat. beat. Yeah. So yeah. tell me what that means to you, other than that sort of literal use of hip-hop that is interwoven through your narratives. I, I, I think you are the only NPR show that relies so much on hip-hop, which I think it, it says a lot about you, but it also says a lot about... The show and the culture. I'm from here, right? I was born in Detroit. <laughs> I love this stuff. I really
1: think that um, I just I I love everything about it. Except it was really really funny when you first stopped. I love everything about hip hop, except um, the misogyny, except the <laughs> the some of the crazier aspects. And yeah. I thought, you know, for my I, I like the. Uh, I like Common and stuff. I like the uh I like I like most deaf. I like Black Star. I I loved being able to put that type of um energy and vibe into the show. Yeah. And um which was great too is when we first started Snap, I got to make the beats myself. It was awesome. I got to score stories. What we're trying to do is uh, I call it dual narration. I wanted two different tracks to tell the story. Um and it was awesome. I love scoring pieces until we started hiring people who were real musicians and they kicked me out of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> and so now, you can't do this no, too. Right. You can't. Right. Now. So now if I try to wander into the music, get get, get up out of here, um,
0: <laughs> which is terrible. I'm going to have
1: to fire them as soon as I get back. But, um, but
0: do you still retain some sort of influence over what the sh- music is? Sure. You get to I say, mean, you
1: can just say like, this is working. This isn't. Um, that's the whole thing about any kind of artistic endeavor, especially one so collaborative as as making these stories, everyone kind of, you you kind of, everyone's a check on everybody else. Nobody can do this alone. No one's going to, you know, I get to be the front person for this, but the how much everyone relies, the moment you get to Snap as an intern, someone's going to ask you what you think. Does this work? Does this move you? Because the whole deal is, um, what we're trying to do from the very beginning is, um, is create empathy. It seems like, it seems like to me that the one thing that's missing in today's dialogue more than anything is understanding what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, to wear someone else's skin. The reason why we do the soundscaping in the first place is because we want to drop you in our world. We want to do a shortcut to putting you in somebody else's experience. And so one of the best ways to do that is to ask a newbie, does this work? for you. We're all jaded radio producer type persons. What do you think? Did it put
0: you there? And if it doesn't, we have to retool. We got to go back right away um, and do something else. How much does Detroit influence that that musical side of the show? That music that we heard as you were just talking about that was from Jay Dilla's Donuts album. Of course, that is a huge part of the Detroit music scene, but Jay Dilla makes a lot of appearances on Snap Judgment, too. He does. I mean, like,
1: I, I think that we have two homes in a lot of ways. Um, one is Oakland, where the show is based right now, but the other is most definitely Detroit. Both myself and um, my uh, partner, uh, Mark Ristich, are from here. Um, the vibe is unmistakably Detroit for the show. And um, I think and just that, um, you know, we, we used to, I used to walk this cast corridor and, um I there's something magical about the time period that you and I grew up in that I really hope that is infuses the vibe of the show going forward. It's just, it was some, it was a, there was just something innocent and cool and had some expectation about it. We had our danger. We had all that craziness at the same time. There was a joy to it. And um, I really hope there's a joy to snap.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I, talk all the time about when we were growing up in the 70s and 80s here in Detroit and what the city was like I, I mostly talk about that with my children who are growing up in the 2000s here in in Detroit because I want them to to understand that it wasn't always like this uh, things didn't always look this way it didn't always feel this way even all of the excitement that's happening now as the city changes really rapidly we, we didn't have a lot of that when we were kids and uh, there were some really dark aspects to yeah. the city at that point that, that some, some of them still around, but uh, it, it's harder to find them, I think. Uh, but, but I always try to tell them that this was a place that I really loved growing up. And I loved even the the, the, the darker aspects of what Detroit was at that point. And it's, it's so hard sometimes to get them to, to understand that, I think,
1: you know, um,
0: no one loved it like
1: me because um, I was I moved when I was very very young from Detroit. I was snatched away, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I lived in the thumb of Michigan. I lived in the middle of nowhere. Literally, we had a, at one point uh, a, a patch of ground, pressure of eighty-eight acres, which I'm going to talk about tonight on Snap Judgment Live. Please come out. But <laughs> we had a, we had a patch of ground, and um, what I used to do was my cousins lived in Detroit. And I felt like I was in a cultural vacuum. And whenever I'd come back to the city, I'd be like, tell me what's going on, tell me what's going on. And they would download whatever they were listening to, dancing to, whatever, the new words, and I would bring it back to the country. I was the emissary between, <laughs> between here and the thumb of Michigan. You were and the I, cool kid. I was, yeah, I got to bring a little bit of cool back. <laughs> right, and I You don't know it. about this, right. you haven't heard this. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. It was, and I and I appreciate that role. And um, I can't even now that whole those download those sessions where they would actually, kid you not, try to tell me every in the course of a weekend, tell me everything I needed to know for the next four months <laughs> to keep up. You know, um, my Detroitness. Ah,
0: those sessions were the, were magic. Yeah. When when you come back to the city now, is it like a, a recharge? Of that, do you, do, you, do you feel like you're plugging in again to be able to, to go back to Oakland and back to all these other cities where you do snap judgment and, and keep that, that voice, that, that tenor and culture of, of this city?
1: When I look at Detroit right now, I don't know what's going on. There's trolleys, it's really different. To going to the suburbs, well, that would never. Well, well, the never don't know. quite go to the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're talking Whatever about. Whatever <laughs> y'all are doing, it's just the stuff, all these things going on. I don't know what's happened until I speak to somebody, and then it's like, oh, okay. Then y'all put a little little window shine on this whole thing, but <laughs> in a lot of ways, um, Detroit hasn't changed. Detroit's the same same people, the same thing. Um, we're we're having some of those same issues, but but I I see a, a definitely a new
0: energy in tackling some of those intractable Detroit issues. And it's, a, it's, it's wonderful to see. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Glenn Washington, the host of Snap Judgment. We are going to talk to him about growing up in Detroit and on a rural farm in the Thumb region of Michigan. We'll get more details about that. We'll also talk about the other work that Glenn is involved in the Heaven's Gate podcast. Stay with us on Detroit Today. <music> You're listening to Detroit today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Glenn Washington. He is the host of Snap. Judgment. He and Snap are in Detroit this week for their live stage show, which takes place at the Royal Oak Music Theater tonight at 8 p.m. There are still tickets available for that event, and you can find information at snapjudgment.org. Glenn is also here because he is an old friend of mine from our college days at the University of Michigan. A little bit later, we're going to talk A little bit more about that time and the relationship that we've had over many, many years. Uh, Glenn, I want to start this segment talking about you growing up. You grew up, you were born here in Detroit. Yes. But you moved to rural Michigan, lived on a farm with your parents. Why did they make that move?
1: I have the foggiest idea. (laughs) I still um, (laughs) don't know. But
0: yeah, that was an interesting choice. But um,
1: the thing of it is, people say, uh, you know, how did you. Come to storytelling, and I always say I came to it the old-fashioned way. Um, I grew up in an apocalyptic, end-of-days, white supremacist Jesus cult, and um, that probably had a lot to do with why we moved out to the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I shouldn't say nowhere because the thumb is not nowhere. That is somewhere. It was just that it was much. Um, we we did live on a for a period of time on a, an eighty-eight acres of. Uh, Newly mortgaged Michigan swampland. Um, we were outside of Kingston uh, near Cairo. and um, and yeah, we were out there. We were far. We were organic farmers before organic was cool, <laughs> we, because we didn't have any fertilizer. And um, it, I actually remember at one point, we I don't I'd really I don't know what we were doing out there, but at one point, um, I'm out in the field with my brother, and we have some hoes, and we're chopping this cornfield. We're chopping this. Trying to get this cornfield busted down. And I see the real farmers with their tractors kind of roll by, going,
0: you know, what in the hell are <laughs> these they doing? Two little there? black kids <laughs> out in the field with those, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: yeah, that was a trip. That was a trip.
0: So, in that answer, you very blithely ran over the words uh, white supremacist cult. Uh, yes. Talk talk a little more about that. <laughs> let's not just run over that. Let's let's explore what the uh, what what you mean yeah. by that. So I uh,
1: my parents in um, the early seventies joined something called the Worldwide Church of God. It was an organization run by dude Herbert W Armstrong, and one of the things that Herbert did was actually for a while it had like a a religious show uh, uh, on TV. It had a, a radio show it had magazines all kinds of stuff and and it was was really you know very glossy slick sort of exterior had a big building in Pasadena California and but one of the things they were really talking about was the end time and the end of days and one of the things that Herbert liked to do was pick dates I didn't know this when I was a little kid but one of the dates was he had picked was uh, 1974 the world was supposed to end well, I guess that didn't happen. So <laughs> they kind of switched that a little bit forward. And so I grew up, and I remember this quote. This was at a church when we were living in Midland, and the, and the, the preacher there said, Brethren, if you think we're going to make it through the 1980s without seeing the return of Jesus Christ, well, you got another thing coming. And And we were told that, you know, I was told that I would not make it out of my teen years. That I would not have a family. That I would not make a, have a wife. All these things because the end of days was nigh. And um, when you think that as a kid, it definitely affects the way you think about everything. At one point, at one point, we were so wild up. People were going to bed wearing their shoes because they thought that Jesus might come in the middle of the night. You went to bed with the uh, with your with your coat on. Some people wearing their hat, so they're ready to meet Jesus. Um, when, yeah, that messes with you as a kid. In fact, but you get to have fun with it too. At one point, I remember my brother was taking a nap, and for some reason, our house rarely being empty was empty. My brother was taking a nap, and I woke him out of the middle of the nap. I said. Jesus came. Mom and dad are gone. He's like, they told us to meet us at 7-Eleven. He's like, what? Get on your bike, on to 7-Eleven quick. He took off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was out there at 7-Eleven for an hour and a half. <laughs> Looking for Jesus, right? Looking for
0: Jesus. <laughs> when he came back, he was hot. <laughs> Why did you tell me Jesus was at 7-Eleven? So so I'm curious about yeah. the racial dynamic though yeah. of this. Were you the only African American family in this cult?
1: There was actually a church in um Detroit um that was largely that had some black followers to it um and there was but there was it was a it was a segregated um for a while until they finally finally relaxed that a little bit. But where I was I was definitely the only black Family. And it's crazy. I think it's just like today. Today, on the way here today, I heard a story about a young woman who I guess she considers herself trans racial or something like that. And she's, she's a, a black girl who decided she didn't want to be black no more. I think that oftentimes no one believes the lie of white suprem- supremacy more than certain black people and there was a lot of that sort of self-hatred that was definitely in the organization that was coming up. Um, the, the deal was, that the doctrine was that there were, um, after Noah, there were three, everyone came from three different sons of Noah after the flood. One was Shem, and he was the, the progenitor of all the white folks. Uh, Japheth was the progenitor of all the Asian people, and Ham was the, was the father of all the black people. And there are, of course, no other races.
0: <laughs> everyone breaks down into one of those categories. <laughs>
1: but uh, Ham committed some terrible thing or something, and the mark of Ham was dark skin. And so, and people of Ham are cursed with the dark skin. Now, part of the doctrine, too, don't please, I can't quite explain all this stuff. I never did understand it, but the first, the, the missing tribes of Israel somehow became the first colonies in the United States. And then when they were all white, it's not like black people couldn't make it to our eventual promised land, but the way to do it was to stick really close to the white folks because they had the key. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like today. and um.
0: the same thing. right
1: same sort of thing so that was kind of it you know you were cursed and you and you didn't have direct access but if you stuck close around close enough you might kind of make it in but um, you know and one of the, the big deals though was um, you could talk to white folks and stuff like that everyone could be friends but there was to be no interracial mixing of course on not. that sexual front which was cool I guess Except if you're the only black kid, <laughs> <laughs> what, do what do you do? What do you do? What
0: do you do? let and your brother. You, you guys, you guys are out of luck. Wow. So
1: it was a, it was an interesting time.
0: I, I wonder, you have children that you're raising now. Yes. What influence does the background that you have in terms of the relationship with your parents? They take you to this farm to this place where there's this religious fanaticism going on where there are some very odd ideas uh, being, you know, imposed on you. As a parent now, do do you find yourself making decisions or thinking about things in a way that pushes back against that? Or do you worry sometimes that there's too much influence from that? I mean, it would be very hard to escape that all together, I would think.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's very interesting because I find myself really not wanting to make those mistakes and then making a bunch of other ones instead. I just, it's, um, at, the, at the end of the day, I do think my parents did the best they could with where they were. Um, they were, they, my parents, the reason, one of the reasons why they left Detroit at the time they did because where we were as poor people in Detroit, it was very dangerous to be a poor black family in Detroit and they wanted to protect their kids the same way anybody wants to protect their kids. And they decided the best way to do it was to move out to the middle of nowhere. And I think they weren't necessarily wrong. Um, they made a choice. It was an odd choice. It was a weird choice. It certainly had a choice as a choice that, um, had ramifications, but uh, they were engaged in a way. Um, they did care. I know them both. I, I just don't, it's so ridiculous. Some of the things just seem so ridiculous. I have to sometimes take a step back and say, these are real people who had some real challenges and they, they, they went for the long ball. And your parents show up in your stories. They sometimes. do, they do. They're gonna show up tonight. I, I get to tell a story, I get to tell a story actually tonight one about my mother and one about my father. And I think they're, they kind of give you a sense of the stakes that they were playing with. They were playing for keeps in a way. They, they looked upon us as everything, everything. This is everything. And um, there was here in Detroit, And this is a story I haven't really, I haven't been able to explore because again, one of those things that you lean away from, I haven't been able to talk about it yet. But what really happened was there was a murder in my family and one family member um, against another. And it happened. And I think the instinct to flee was really born of that. And it happened right in Detroit. And I think that, What's happened? Even like, n- nothing can be divorced from that. That happened uh, from, from any of our family from that from that tragedy.
0: Did you learn about that murder as a child or as an adult? It is my very
1: first memory. Um, I happened to be there, and that was one of the impetuses. I think of my parents saying, "We've got to do something. I can't have this be the template."
0: that my kids are raised under. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest this hour is Glenn Washington. He's the host of Snap Judgment here on NPR. He and Snap are in Detroit this week with their live stage show, and it is at the Royal Oak Music Theater tonight at 8 p.m. If you still want to get tickets for that, they are available. You can find that information at snapjudgment.org. If you want to join the conversation, talk to Glenn about his work, about his wonderful show. Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313 577 That's 313 577 You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag DetroitToday. And we will try to work you into the conversation. Glenn, a year ago, you released a completely different show from Snap. It was a podcast called Heaven's Gate, which looked at that ill-fated cult. Let's listen to a clip from the podcast. It's a mother you spoke with whose son was part of the cult and shut her out of his life. She's watching a home video of her son and fellow members of Heaven's Gate celebrating at the holidays. It's fun to see how they celebrated the holiday they really did, so
1: you see them you know not as cultists, you know, but enjoying each other as people and I'm glad to know that he had these things in his life because I know that that he was loved and that he loved others and so what more can you wish for your children? you know that they be loved and have others that they love that's That's so important to me. Four months later, everybody in the video, including David, would be dead.
0: Topic of news at 11 is a story that's making news across the nation and across the world. Coroner's officials have stopped in the street. They are talking to members of the media. Several dozen of them now gathered outside the van's uh, door trying to get word, any detail at all, on this story.
1: On March 26, nineteen ninety-seven, police and first responders rushed to the San Diego mansion where the bodies were found, and they thought they were all men. You're looking at the site where thirty-nine young men have been found dead and believed to be in a religious. Because they all had the same haircuts, and their outfits, they wore thirty-nine matching black homemade uniforms, thirty-nine identical pairs of black decade edition Nikes. In fact, slightly more than half of the dead were women. Investigators suspect suicide because they saw no obvious signs of struggle. If there are 39 bodies in there, and possibly more, they're gonna have to make sure that nobody was murdered to determine that actually everybody did commit suicide and how that happened. It was just awful. And it would've been unwatchable if the sadness weren't punctuated by so much weird.
0: That was from Glenn Washington's podcast, Heaven's Gate. So we talked about your own experience with a cult. I often think that as adults and as storytellers, journalists, uh, artists, it's easier sometimes to tell things about ourselves through something else, through somebody else, right? So you grew up in a cult. In some way, it's, it's a little easier to talk about somebody else's experience with a cult than maybe it is to to come right out and say, well this was me too.
1: Yeah. No, there's no question. I think I think that I had a um an affinity for this story because of my own background. And um yeah, because what the I remember I remember when I first heard about what had happened at Heaven's Gate, I was actually in Detroit. I was at um I was at the Renaissance Center. And I was having I was I was having a cocktail, some sort of celebratory cocktail or something like this, you know, renaissance, you know, it's the big deal, I'm having a good time. And um, this story came out on, and everyone shut down in the bar and they shut down for like maybe a couple minutes and then people started talking again. And I was like, no, everyone's got to, sh- everyone in the bar has to shut up right now because <laughs> I'm looking at what's going on and I, and people are saying, oh, those crazy people. Why'd they do that? You know, you never know what's going on in California and things of this nature. But I was thinking if the founder of my cult, Herbert W. Armstrong, had said, I need you all to drink this potion so that we get to the next level, I would guesstimate between 70 and 90 percent of the people would have have drank it and drank it eagerly. And so, yes— this was like a way to explore that road not taken. Um, and because maybe there was certainly a, mo- a point in time where I might have been one of those people who drank. And that is scary. Again, one of those things that you recoil from. And um, I don't think I'm crazy. And I wanted to see... I. I, I uh, I wanted to make sure that I wanted to see if there was a way to make the people who committed that act not look like such an other. And that was kind of the point of the Heaven's Gate podcast.
0: How and why did you end up leaving the church?
1: Um, It became apparent um, that some of the racial policies were not, an aberration on the corners but we are we're actually central to the the organization's belief system. I always thought that the organization sure it's racist but so is everything else. Um you thought
0: I, the whole world looked like what you were experiencing.
1: Yes. And I, and I thought well you know everyone's everything every institution has some of these aspects to it and we're going to get this cleaned out and get this fixed and that's going to be through of my role. But that didn't seem to be it just seemed there were so many foundational tenets were that way. And actually, at one point, though, when I was thinking this, I went and I asked and my, my then pastor. I was having a lot of questions. I'm a kid about, you know, gra- grappling with religion in general. And I said, I don't get any of this. I don't understand. A lot of what they had done was in much the same way that certain Muslim children have to memorize the Quran, We had to memorize the Bible. And when that happens, what they didn't realize, what they were doing was they were creating a whole generation of people. You can only memorize the Bible or any book like that when you're a kid. You can't, do, when the older people can't do it. So when they would tell us that certain things were in that Bible, well, like, no, no, it's not. I read it. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, can, I can give you book, chapter, verse. It's not there. And at one point, I, and I thought I had, you know, this really big, you know, this Bible knowledge. And then... I was wondering where that, where this book came from and um, to his credit again, my pastor, he gave me a book and it was called who wrote the Bible and I read it and I read it again and um, I never went
0: back. What about now? What about uh, religion in your life? What about religion and your children? You're raising your kids. Yeah. So some families shouldn't drink alcohol.
1: Some families, maybe they need to stay away from so much excessive exercise. My family needs to stay away from religion.
0: <laughs> that's what we, you took away from that, yeah, right?
1: We can't just have little—we can't, like, go to church on Sunday and then going about our business the rest of the week. We got to go all in. We got to lose our minds. We got to give all our money to, to whatever pastor's on the TV. We can't have that's a little bit. And um, what was really funny was when I I was still grappling with a lot of these questions when I moved to Japan. I moved to Japan when I was, like, 19. And and then trying to explain my religious beliefs to a Japanese person in Japanese, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. (laughs) Because they would laugh and laugh. And they would bring their friends over. Say that again. And... um, (laughs) you believe what for what reason what and I'm trying to explain and then I'm when you when you realize you're not making any sense to yourself it's time to do, again do some um some self-reflection and i thank the universe for giving me the opportunity to really examine very very deeply what I did believe and honestly it's just not there's so much to do so much love to give so much the world needs so many things i just think like let's just do good goodbye people and let all the rest of that stuff
0: kind of sort itself out because I don't know Glenn Washington who is the host of snap judgment is my guest this is Detroit today on 1019 WDET it's always the number on the phones if you want to join the conversation is 313-577-1019 that's 313-577-1019 you can also go to the WDET Facebook page put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Glenn and Snap will be at the Royal Oak Music Theater tonight at 8 p.m. Tickets are still available, and you can find info at snapjudgment.org. Uh, Glenn, uh, talk about the uh, t- talk about the beliefs that you have given the things that happened to you as a child. You, you said that you, you you don't feel like you can do religion uh, the way other people do, but belief, I think, is another thing that powers our work. It powers our child rearing, uh, the things, the decisions that we make. Where do, you, where do you find that, if not through religion? I believe in story. I believe that the only thing that
1: we, the only tool that we have for getting inside someone else's head and really communicating to each other is story. Um, and that story, well told, is a magic. It's a straight magic. When I was first, um, when we first started Snap, I was watching Crossfire. And one of my favorite shows. See what? Well, Missed th- that show. This is where I disagree with you entirely because I just saw two jackasses braying at each other. <laughs> and I thought no one in the history of time has ever changed their mind. From watching that show, it's not a show that actually—you um, only get hardened in whatever side. It's fake binaryism. It's ridiculous to, to me that way. And I thought it was. Yeah,
0: a- I feel like Crossfire was not that. I feel like if you look at TV now, you watch Fox News, you watch MSNBC, you watch CNN. That's what you see: are two sides who are so dug in that there's just no point in the conversation anymore. I feel like on Crossfire, even though they were bitterly divided in the way they saw things they respected each other. They often would admit that, okay, I don't agree with you, but eh, that's sort of a good point, And that makes me think a little differently. It was a, it was a tough show, right? I mean, they, were, they would shout at each other and things like that. But do you think that was the same as what we see now on television?
1: Oh, of course. I think that what's going on now. And I think that you know, hopefully, you know, people who are listening to this, unfortunately, might not be the people listening to Fox News or whatever, which is just, which is, I mean, unfortunately, that's great. I'm glad that you're not doing that, listeners, because that's absurd nonsense. And I think that, of course, our our airwaves are are filled with that crazy vitriol. But I think this is a the early, vitri- this is a kind of an early precursor of it. It's like, it was two people shouting at each other. I just think that that that's just not the way that we you feel like that's how we got here. I think it is the way we got here. I don't think that's the way we process information. I don't think it's how, how we actually process new ideas. What's crazy is this. Um, a little while ago, in fact, a, 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 one of the most amazing storytellers in the world, his name was Don Reed. He's going to be with the uh, show tonight. He um, he told a story about his transsexual sister on Snap Judgment. And he told about, you know, this whole, this whole how he how he found out about who she was, how she found out about who she was and eventually how she perished. And he was talking, this. he told this story and it's just a stunning story. And Step Judgment plays on 400 stations and it played, this story played in the deep South. It played in Mississippi, it played wherever it may be. And we didn't receive one single um, negative phone call or anything about this story. But if I had said, this is how, Transsexualism works, or something like that. Then all of a sudden, it would have been up this ridiculous argument that I didn't really want to have. It seems like you can, especially nowadays, you don't. We don't even accept this that we're working from the same facts. We don't even like. You, can't, you can you can say a simple statement like the the world is getting warmer, and we um, and there's going to be argument on that, but no one argues your story. And you can we can still have. We can still take people places where they might not have been mentally by telling a narrative and connecting with them that way. And I think it's a it's like a magic power. And I and I
0: love it for that. We're gonna take another quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna continue our conversation with Glenn Washington, the host of Snap Judgment, and we will get to your calls. Charlie in Detroit, Mark in Sterling Heights, Dylan in Detroit. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Detroit today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Glenn Washington, the host of Snap Judgment here on NPR. He and Snap are in Detroit. This week with their live stage show, which takes place tonight at the Royal Oak Music Theater at 8 p.m. You can still buy tickets at snapjudgment.org. We're talking about Glenn's life and his career and his work. We're also talking about the fact that Glenn and I have known each other since the late 80s. We were college students together at the University of Michigan And we work together at the college newspaper there. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Let's go to Mark in Sterling Heights. Mark, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. Hey, Mark.
1: Hi. um, I don't know if it's been
0: brought up yet or not, but... um, Snap Judgment, one of my favorite shows. Top-notch storytelling, music's really great. But um, what I wanted to bring up is the podcast Spook, if it hasn't been brought up already. <laughs> yeah, it's another, another really good show that I very much enjoy. And you've been you've been hearing that this week on Culture Shift here on uh, WDT. They've been playing some of the Spooked episodes, Glenn. Uh, so that's a great entree to, the, to my next question, actually. Uh, you and I knew each other at the University of Michigan thirty some years ago. Yeah, we worked at the college newspaper. I knew that you went off after that to go to law school at some point. I have no idea how you ended up doing all of this really fascinating work in radio, telling stories on the radio, not just Snap Judgment, but as Mark points out, this this very scary podcast called Spooked. This is a, a crazy, another crazy.
1: Everything's a crazy story. Um and I'm I'm Mark, I'm thrilled you like Spook. The final episode will drop soon and you won't believe it. It's gonna be hot. <laughs> but um and you'll hear uh Snap Judgment Listeners, you'll hear a version of Spook um this weekend. But um what happened was I did I had a career. First, I was uh I was here, was doing I went and tried to do the traditional law thing, and of course I was fired. <laughs> um, and I got a chance to say to kind of start again and like and really get into things that were interesting to me. I started working in public policy and, and things after really a spectacular failure and sort of like the traditional legal route. And um, I started, I, I just, which is great that I, that I had that failure early and uh, started running various nonprofits, started running, working for the UN, started doing a bunch of stuff that was that really interested me with, with being able to say I tried the, that, the traditional thing and it wasn't for me. I had, that, I, could, I had that failure as almost as a buttressing thing. And then one day I was minding my own business and I was eating some Chinese food in Berkeley Oh, let me back up. I had, I heard about a contest and it said, uh, if you want to, if you think you're hosty, you know, and it was like Ira Glass and Terry Gross and a few other people said, you know, if you think you want you've got the chops to do this, um, submit a a little two minute entry. And I was like, well, just like a lot of you listening right now, I did this simply to preserve my right to complain. (laughs) About public media, <laughs> which I love, but I just thought they had a few things that they needed a um, little little uh, attention to. So I, I said, you can't say that without offering your own perspective. So I went on ahead and put in my little clip. And about three months later, I forgot about this clip. Three months later, I got a call saying I was one of 10 finalists nationwide. But because, again, I know better and my best buddy is a jokester i thought it was him playing a prank i said nice try mark and i hung up the phone on him. <laughs> but, but uh they called back and said, we don't know who mark is but uh do you want to do this we're serious yeah we're serious and i said all right so they essentially they um they uh they had 10 uh, virtual contests and they did put us through this whole process and then at the end of it they said okay make a pilot i hadn't any i didn't you know anything about making a pilot but by this time I had actually enlisted that Mark guy. We did our best. We did the best we could and we we worked. We made a pilot for this show and we we worked hard and we didn't sleep for a week and we turned it in. We thought, okay, at least we did the damn thing. There, there it is. And I got a call the next morning from the contest organizers and they said, and I quote, you've embarrassed me? You've embarrassed the Corporation for Public Broadcasting? You've embarrassed NPR, and you've embarrassed yourself. Click. Oh no!
0: Then this was not your friend Mark. Joking. No, this—I was <laughs> this hoping. Was I wish it too. would
1: be, but this was dead serious. And um, I didn't understand. I didn't know what we had done. Uh, thanks to an amazing act of professional generosity, um, a woman, her name was Holly Kernan, she gave him a first professional listen, and she says, um, "You are actually." a really good storyteller. I like, well, well, thank you. You're a really crappy radio producer. I know this. I, I never did that before. But she kind of like helped me like understand just basic things. And we redid the show and turned it back in and eventually got to pitch it. And this is what's really, really funny. When I was pitching the show, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, they liked it and stuff like this. And then I, someone said, well, you're, what you're pitching right now is a multimedia thing. And it seems like it's got radio, it's got TV, it's got stage, it's got a lot of things in it. Maybe there's some examples that we can find of, of people who've done this in the past and um, some research group went and looked for something. And you know who they came back with? Was a guy by the name of Herbert W. Armstrong who started the cult that I grew up in. You're kidding. As one of the people who had actually done an early multimedia sort of um, combination. I'm like, no! as...
0: Full circle and an awful way. As you right? run away,
1: you get right <laughs> back to where you
0: started. It's craziness. That is unbelievable. Yeah, wow. Uh, Mark, very th- uh, thanks very much for the great call and the question. Let's go to Charlie in Detroit. Charlie, welcome to Detroit today.
1: Hey, thank you. I just wanted to thank both you guys for the culture and humanity you bring to the world of radio. Um, your, your shows keep public radio what it should be, you know, in Informative, relative, relevant, and, and compelling, and um, you're preserving a great medium of radio that I think is kind of challenged in today's world of uh, all kinds of
0: media. But um, and then just lastly, go Detroit, go blue, and my son and I are geeked about going to the show tonight. Oh, can't
1: wait, to <laughs> can't wait to see you there! Can't wait to see you there. But let me cool. let me just say this because I might not. I want to make sure I use this opportunity. Um, I have known your host here for some time. You might not know. what Steven was like back in the day. Um, You, I don't think that many people would be very surprised to see your trajectory. I don't think people would be surprised. Maybe radio itself. There's going to be radio newspaper. You've had that thing about you. One of the smartest guys I ever met, I must say he must've thought I was crazy. When I first went to the university of Michigan's paper, um, it, it was um it was you and a guy, um, and David Schwartz. David Schwartz, still a close friend of mine. Yes, David Schwartz, and you guys just had such a um a background and way with words. Um we were in something called the editorial board there. We would make um opinions for that that were supposedly gonna represent the daily. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um and, and but you would uh, and you your logic there and your sagacity at such an early age, I just think was remarkable because I I must have been saying the
0: most – you must have thought I was insane. No, we, I, I, I've actually talked with David Schwartz about you because, of course, we know you're a big media star now. And, and I think both of us can kind of see where all of this comes from. You were a, a shyer kid then. I remember you being a little less – uh, I mean, on the show, you're just so energetic. And you're telling <laughs> these stories with such inflection and and personality. Uh, but but that whole thing, it, it, it makes sense to me. I just, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure. Sitting in that editorial board room, I would have said, "Oh yeah, this guy's going to be a big public radio star when we when we leave here." I
1: just remember. Now some of the arguments I made I would I'd cringe from. <laughs>
0: yeah, we would all cringe from, right? We were we all have things back from that time that we would be pretty embarrassed about. All right, Glenn Washington, host of Snap Judgment, friend of mine for almost thirty years now is really great to have you here on Detroit today so awesome being here. Thank you so much. And again, snapjudgment.org if you want tickets to Snap Live at the Royal Oak Music Theater tonight at 8 p.m. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station and community service of Wayne State University. I will see you on Monday.